Stand with us and sing this morning.
Hey, good morning, fellowship. You may be seated. We are so glad that you are here worshiping with us at the 9 a.m. hour, so you're the early risers now. Congratulations, way to be here. And you might be wondering why I'm holding a trophy. If you're new, we do not give away attendance awards. We, we leave that to the Holy Spirit and between you and the Holy Spirit, but we are glad you're here. But no, this is an award from our men's retreat last weekend. Uh, we had an incredible time, changed life stories that you'll be hearing about in the, the weeks to come. But we, what I wanted to highlight this morning was we had a, a, a home run derby contest. New Life Ranch has this incredible wiffle ball field. And so it was an opportunity for every man there to throw out his back. We only had two injuries that I know of. Um, it was incredible. I used to have really good hand-eye coordination. I think I finished about 45th and so in the, in the, in the contest. But uh, Travis Pennington won this, and he's actually, yeah, he, that, good friend of Travis out there. But um, he's serving in our, uh, along with his wife in our uh, disabilities and, and special needs ministry right now. So I'm going to give this to him next hour. But guys, next year, this is a traveling trophy. This could be yours. And so um, just know that. The men's retreat. There also was a cornhole uh, tournament. There was one injury during that. I'm not sure how it happened, but he had to go home early. But we're glad you're here this morning. If you're new, we are super glad you're here. We'd love the opportunity to connect with you, and we can do that in one of two ways. Um, in the foyer, uh, stop by the booth, and we'd love to answer any questions you have. We are a cup of coffee kind of church. We'd love to buy you a cup of coffee. Go to Starbucks or something and just hear your story. Let us tell you about fellowship. You can also take a, you can, don't take a picture. You can actually zoom in on the QR code and then as that comes up, you can fill out the information and we'll follow up with you. But we would love the opportunity to connect with you. If you're gonna be a part of fellowship, um, we basically want you to do three things. Three things. We want you to be here on Sunday mornings and find a time to worship. We want you to be a part of a small group, and then we want you to find a place to serve or lead. And so uh, the, this next opportunity is just a place to get in a small group. We're starting a small group this summer for those who don't have a small group, and it's super easy to enter. You just show up here on Tuesdays, and you can sign up through the QR code or call us at the church, and we get you connected. But if you're new to fellowship, this is a great opportunity to get connected. Um, we've got some longtime fellowship people who are going to lead the group. It'll be a really fun time, and so we would love the opportunity for you to be a part of that. If if you have any questions, stop by the booth in the foyer and we will answer them. Hey, um, do you ever feel like you don't know what's going on here? Well, welcome to my world. No, um, we want you to know what's going on here. In order for you to know what's going on, we need you to, to let us know your information. So we want you to go online and make sure you have the right information. You know, with the launch of Bentonville, with Fayetteville now, it's a little confusing. We want to make sure you have the right congregation checked. So you're coming to this campus, Fellowship Rogers, if you're not sure where you're at. And then, um, and then you can sign up to get a, a weekly uh, notice, just what's going on. And that's Fellowship News. And it tells you everything that's going on. We want you to feel like you're communicated with. And it uh, makes a big church feel small. This next weekend, family camp, one of my children's favorite things we did growing up, and it's your opportunity to attend. They, we've, it's, it's basically a day camp now. We used to, you know, back in my day, we did multiple nights. Now it's just a day camp. That's okay. You come early, you stay late, um, bring your kids bicycles, and just have fun. It's at New Life Ranch, one of the coolest places around, but you need to sign up, if you're going to sign up, by Monday. I think sign up's closed by Monday, so you go online, sign your family up. We would love to have you join us. One of the things we're doing to help um, just increase student participation in retreats and in camps 
and in mission trips is we started something called the Student Activity Fund. And what it does, it helps students that can't afford to go, to go on those things. Um, so it's partial scholarships or scholarships. And then also, um, it reduces the overall cost. And so if that interests you, if you're like me and you've had lots of, of life change happen in your children's uh, lives over the years and you wanna help fund that for the future generations, just go online and give to it. It's a great opportunity for us to kind of lay the foundation um, for the future of fellowship. And we're very excited about that. Hey, one of the things I'm most excited about is our younger talented staff at Fellowship. I don't know if you've noticed this, but we've had, we have incredible young and talented staff. And this morning, we're being led in worship by Ty Olson. And Ty grew up here. Can you say welcome to Ty? Yes. Most Sunday mornings, Ty is over in the Fellowship Student Ministry Rooms, ministering to the 7th through 12th graders. And then teaching this morning, we have Caleb Freeman. And Caleb is the, the Fellowship Student Ministry's team leader. So he, he leads the whole team. He works primarily with the young men in Springdale, but he leads the whole team. He's teaching with us this morning. If you were here on Easter, he partnered with Sam. I love it every time Caleb teaches. He's part of our, our teaching rotation here on Sunday mornings. We got incredibly talented young staff. Uh, we got some female young staff too, and so it's just really exciting time to be a part of Fellowship Rogers. Would you join me as I pray and kick off our service this morning? Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful we get to do this, that we get to gather and we get to worship you. Lord, we're so grateful that you seem to be moving in Northwest Arkansas. And Lord, we pray for changed lives. We pray that the gospel would go out right here, that, 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 that the people in this room, we would be led by your Holy Spirit to take the gospel out of this place and into the neighborhoods. Lord, would you, would you choose to use us? But Lord, this morning as we come, would you fill us with your Holy Spirit? Lord, as we're led by these wonderfully talented staff and volunteers, Lord, would you help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Well, good morning, fellowship. This is really, really special for me. Uh, like John said, I, uh, I grew up here. And so this is home for me. And the seats that you guys are sitting in are the seats that I grew up going to. I don't remember my first day at fellowship. Uh, and it's cool because as I look out at you, I see the faces of a lot of spiritual fathers and a lot of spiritual mothers in my life. Um, and so I don't know if you remember, but there was probably an Easter service in 2005 where Mickey got up and sang a hymn that you couldn't even pronounce the words. And then Robert Cub gets up there and he's just spitting heat from the pulpit. And there's this little brat in the back just screaming and crying and throwing a fit. I now have the platform to say, hey, I'm really sorry about that. I'm really sorry. It was me. It was me the whole time. Um, I'm the definitely, out of all the Olsons, I'm the most dramatic by far. And it's not even close. Um, but a couple of things just to bear my heart to you guys. First of all, I wanna say just thank you. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to be here with you and also just for loving my family well uh, in our, our good seasons and our bad seasons. This is just really, really special. Uh, but the second is this, just to bear my heart. A lot of times I come in on Sunday mornings really, really, really anxious. And I don't know what it is about Saturday nights, but usually they're pretty tough for me. And it's almost like I wake up on Sunday and I have just a bag of rocks just sitting on my chest. And I'm prone a lot to anxiety and to bitterness and to anger. And so a lot of times I come in just ungrateful. What a surprise that ingratitude and anxiety go hand in hand. And so something that I've, we've started doing with our students and students in our West is 
We've asked them to come and just for a moment before we worship, we ask them to hold out their hands and to close their eyes and just think because professional athletes need some time to warm up before they start performing. And I feel like sometimes it's hard for me to come in here and just worship right out of the gate because I'm just thinking about some of the stuff that's happening in my life already. Maybe some tough conversations I had the night before and I wake up with bitterness and anger at that person. I'm getting in arguments in my head before I've even gotten in the shower in the morning. And it's hard. So what we do with our students, and I'd love to do it this morning if you guys will let me. I am a student pastor, and so I'm gonna try, I'm gonna try to do it for adults. This is kind of new for me. Uh, but this is what we'll do. And so if you guys would, would you close your eyes? And would you hold out your hands in front of you with your palms up as if God were going to give you a gift the way that you'd receive it? And we're about to sing a song about our need and our desire and our desperation for God. And could we just take a moment to call to mind the things that we're grateful for? Some prayers that we asked for that we forgot to thank God for. Some things that God delivered and provided that we didn't expect. Even in the hardship, we can thank God for the trials that he sees us as worthy of becoming more like him. So before we sing, could we just spend a moment in gratitude?
continue to sing, I'd love for us just to sit and meditate on this passage out of Philippians 4. Your song, cause you got a lion inside 
Often that's what we bring into a room like this is a lot of sin and a lot of brokenness and a lot of weakness. But Jesus, we know that you are here and we know that when we bring our hallelujah to you, if that's all we have, that it's acceptable to you. And Jesus, our natural response to who you are and what you've done for us is gratitude. And gratitude is the killer of worry. It's the killer of, of sorrow and despair and depression because we are remembering who you are and what you have done, Jesus. When we were dead and our sins and transgressions, you reached down from heaven and you made us alive with God. It is by grace we are saved and we didn't earn it. It's not by anything that we've done. But Jesus, it was all you. So we're grateful for a God that we serve that loves us on our worst days just as much as he loves us on our best days. And we know it's not much, Lord, but all we have to sing to you is hallelujah. And that's where we enter this morning. We're so grateful for you, for your love, and for your presence. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, every, every good storyteller uses some detail. They'll use some dialogue, and they'll use some action statements when they're telling a good story. But similar to somebody who likes to bake, you got to have the right ingredients, but you also got to have the right proportion of those ingredients a good storyteller has to have the right proportion of detail, dialogue, and action. Too much, things get a little overwhelming, too little, and it's boring. In fact, my daughter is figuring this out. Our oldest is finishing up kindergarten, and it's been fun to watch her this year as she's starting to recognize there are certain things that she should include in stories that will actually help her story. It'll further her point. It, it brings it to life. She's also noticing that there are certain details that don't really matter, that she doesn't need to share because they distract from her story. And honestly, I, just, I think that's the process of growing up. That's the process of maturing. It's what we coach our high school students in, high school boys a lot when in our student ministry, just saying, hey, that's too much information. We, we, we don't need to know that. I'll walk into a Bible study and oftentimes I go, hey, boys, we don't need to talk that way. I know it smells in here. It's called body odor. I don't need you to describe it to me. I don't want to be able to visualize it. I can sense it with my nose right now. It's just too much information. That's what happens with all of these. You give too much detail, it's overwhelming. You give too little, it's unentertaining. You give too much dialogue, and we don't know what's happening. You give too little, you don't know the characters, the action. It's overstimulating, too little. It's boring. You've probably noticed that as we've gone through the Gospel of John that he's an artist. John knows how much detail to use. He knows how much dialogue to use, and he always has the right amount of action. And the same is going to be true today. And what we'll see as we study John chapter 5, the healing of the man at Bethesda 
is that John is going to intricately weave the details, the conversations, the action statements together to come to a point. John's got a purpose for telling this story to his readers. He actually wants us to know something. And you, you might notice that the main character of this story isn't the man who was healed. The main character in the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda is Jesus. Because John is trying to tell his readers something about Jesus. And there's a formula to figure out what that statement is. You see, in this story, I think if you take the details and you add them with the dialogue and the action statements, you get a really clear depiction of who John is describing Jesus to be. Today, here's our goal. We're gonna figure out what this picture of Jesus is that John is giving us. And the way that we're gonna figure it out For all of you algebra fans, we're just gonna plug and chug. We're gonna go through this formula, and when we put it together, we're gonna understand what it is that John wants us to know about Jesus. So let's start. John chapter five, verses one through five, it says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda. It has five colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And one man was there, and he had been invalid. He'd been paralyzed for 38 years. You see, right off the bat, John begins to set the setting. He gives us the the, the setting that we're in, and he does so with some details. He says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and that Jesus went to Jerusalem. We don't know necessarily what feast it was. John doesn't see it as important enough to describe what feast, but where Jesus went for the feast, to Jerusalem. And if Jesus is going to Jerusalem for this feast, it probably would have been Pentecost or Passover or or the Feast of Tabernacles, one of those. But the important point is where is Jesus? He's in Jerusalem. And then after telling us that Jesus is in Jerusalem broadly, John gets a little more specific. And he says, in Jerusalem, there's a pool. And that pool, it's by the Sheep Gate. It's also got an Aramaic name. That's Bethesda. And it's got five roofed colonnades. He describes it in detail. We can see from the roofs that it's large. This is a big space, which would have made sense for the group of people that John later tells us were around the pool. But he doesn't just want us to see how large it is. He also wants us to know the Aramaic name for this pool, which is Bethesda. And he's got a purpose because Bethesda means house of mercy or kindness. And not only is the Aramaic name, does it ring of mercy, but he also lets us know that this is by the sheep gate, a gate rightfully named. It would have been the gate that sacrificial animals would have passed through before they were cleansed, prior to entering into the temple to be sacrificed. And it's there that we find a pool. And although not said explicitly here, the belief is that this pool had healing powers, that an angel of the Lord would descend down onto these waters, stir up the water, and the first person who could make their way into the pool when the water was being stirred would find healing. We'll actually see the man reference that fact or that idea as he's talking with Jesus. So this is where we find our Lord, Jesus. And let me just say it this way. The real sacrificial lamb shows up to a place with themes of sacrifice. Jesus, the real healer, shows up to a pool with the idea of healing. Jesus, the king of mercy, shows up to the house of mercy. 
And he doesn't just show up to be there, he sees people. Because in this location are the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. But just as we went from Jerusalem to a specific spot, John tells us that we go from a multitude of people to one man who for nearly four decades had been paralyzed. You see, there's two things I think we often do with details. One, we either ignore them, and we just go, I have no clue what the sheep gate is. I don't know what a colonnade is. Let's just keep reading. Or two, we study about them, and we learn some facts about these details, but we don't do anything with it. We don't synthesize them. Let's put them together. What do the details actually tell us? Well, in short, the details tell us where Jesus is. They answer the question of where. Where is Jesus? And really succinctly, Jesus is with people. He went to Jerusalem during the feast to be with people, but not just the general population. Jesus seeks out those who are hurting. And it's there around the pool that Jesus finds one man. And as he comes up to this man, Jesus sees that he's been lying there for a while. He knew that. Jesus says to him, do you wanna be healed? And the man replies back to Jesus saying, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. And while I'm trying to get down into it, another goes before me. They step in front of me. And so Jesus says to him, well, get up, take up your mat, take up your bed, and walk. You see, in this section, we, we, we can actually hear the man making reference to the believed idea that the waters had healing powers. It's also this section that we begin to see the dialogue. Jesus goes to the place where the people are hurting. He shows up and he sees the man who has been paralyzed 38 years, knows that this man has been there a while, and he begins a good conversation by saying, do you wanna be healed? And, and if you're like me when you read that, now hear me out, I'm not Jesus, so he gets to say what he wants to say to people, but I don't know if I would've started the conversation this way. It's a little bit of an outrageous statement. Jesus walks up to a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years, and he says, do you wanna be healed? And the answer, I'm assuming, is undeniably yes. But why would Jesus say it this way? Why does John think it's important enough for us to see that the conversation began with Jesus asking this question this way? I think we get the answer as we see the way that the man replies to Jesus. Because after Jesus says, do you want to be healed? The man says, sir. I don't have anyone to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. As you read it, you can almost hear the defensiveness in the man's voice, rightfully so. He's looking around going, yeah, of course I wanna be healed, but it doesn't work. The man says to Jesus, sir, he doesn't, he doesn't recognize him. He doesn't call him Lord. He doesn't call him teacher. He doesn't call him rabbi. He says, sir, I have no one. And those words, I have no one, I think they actually give us a little bit of insight into this man's story. Because he's looking at Jesus and what he's saying is, I'm all alone. I, I, I don't have anybody. This man has been abandoned. He doesn't have a family member who's willing to sit around the pool and wait to carry him into the water that he might find healing. He doesn't have a community that surrounded him, that can help him. He doesn't have a society that's even willing to look at him, talk with him, engage with him, see value in him. This man is abandoned and he says it to Jesus. And he doesn't just admit I'm abandoned, I'm isolated, I'm alone. He also says I'm incapable. He says when I try and walk into the water, someone beats me. 
This man is trying to do exactly that which is impossible for him. A paralyzed man walking into a pool. And this is why Jesus asks the question the way that he does. Because he's drawing something out. He's asking a deeper question. When Jesus says, do you want to be healed? It's almost as if he's saying, where do you put your hope? And I can't prove this at all, but I do wonder if as Jesus is talking with the man, if he intentionally separated himself from the pool, if the pool would have been over there, the man in the middle and Jesus on this side, and Jesus looks at him and says, do you wanna be healed? Where do you place your hope? And what it does is it juxtaposes the two options for the man. And he has to look and go, well, I put my hope over here, but it's not really working. And to that, Jesus says, well, get up. Take up your bed, walk. Again, another outrageous statement from Jesus. He started off the conversation different than I would have, and he ends it a little differently than I would have. Because right after he says, get up, take your bed and walk, look what happens. The man was healed. At once, the man was healed. 38 years changed at once. Jesus looks at him and says, get up, take up your bed and walk. And the man gets up, takes up his bed and walks. This is the section of action and this is actually what we believe. As followers of Jesus, we, this isn't strange to us. This isn't abnormal to us. We actually believe that Jesus can, does, and did heal people. That he can do so with his words. We believe that that's possible because here at Fellowship and around the world as followers of Christ, we believe that Jesus is God. That he's actually the God who took on flesh. He came and lived the life that we couldn't. He died the death that we deserve and he rose to new life that we might too. That's what we believe, and here we see Jesus heal a man simply by saying to the man, you're healed. It's almost like the recreator is demonstrating the fact that he can recreate. Why does Jesus do it this way? Why doesn't Jesus spit in the dirt, make some mud, put it on the guy like he did for the man who was blind? Why doesn't Jesus touch this man, similar to how the woman reached out and touched the cloak of Jesus and was healed. Why doesn't Jesus walk the guy into the water? He says, I have nobody. Why doesn't Jesus say, well, you've got me, and walk him down into the water to find healing? I think it's because Jesus wants to demonstrate something. Jesus wants to demonstrate that he doesn't just take this man to a healing. He's not a facilitator. Jesus wants to demonstrate that he has brought healing to this man by bringing himself to this man. Jesus is the healer. And true healing is found not in a change of circumstance alone, but in the presence of the healer. That's who Jesus is. And so now we can take these details, the dialogue, the actions, we can add them together. We can understand what, what John is saying. The details tell us where Jesus is. He's a God who pursues his people. He chases. He goes to Jerusalem, and not just to Jerusalem, but to the pool where people are hurting. The true sacrificial lamb he shows up by the sheep gate with themes of sacrifice. The true Lord of mercy shows up to Bethesda, the house of mercy. And the real healer puts himself in front of the pool that supposedly could heal people. There Jesus interacts with those who are in need. And specifically with one person. He finds a man, he looks at a man, a man who's been abandoned and isolated and alone. Jesus engages in a dialogue with him, in conversation. He looks at him, knows him. 
And Jesus asks him, where do you put your hope? Over there or somewhat with me? And the man doesn't respond. The man, man says, well, clearly over here, but it's not working. And Jesus almost somewhat says, well, you should put it in me. And he validates that idea by healing the man's legs. You see, John wants the people to know, he wants his readers to know that Jesus is God. And as God, Jesus is present and he is powerful. He is both. Jesus pursued this man. Didn't just pursue him, he changed this man's life. He's not just a powerful God who's distant. He actually knows us and sees us. But you see, I, I think we distance ourselves from this reality. I think we distance ourselves from this truth. We don't feel like the healing at the pool of Bethesda is something that we can relate to, but I promise you, if you're honest with yourself, it really is something that we're pretty close to. Listen to the words of that man who talks to Jesus. He says, I have no one. I have no one. I've been abandoned. I've been isolated. I'm alone. I don't have any help, and I'm hopeless. There's nothing that I can do that would make myself better, and the only thing that could possibly bring me hope is impossible for me to do. The man is alone and hopeless, and if you're like me, you know that feeling because it's my story. You see, I grew up in an incredible family. I have a loving mom, a loving father. They taught me what it means to love others and to love Jesus. I got a bigger brother who is my hero. I look up to him more than anyone in the world. And yet, like most young men, I grew up insecure. I just didn't know who I was. I didn't know where I fit in. I, I, I didn't think I would be as cool as my brother, as brave as my brother, as smart as my brother. I didn't think I'd measure up to my friends that I was as fun as them, that I fit in with them. I didn't think I'd be as successful as my parents. I just didn't know who I was. And so eventually a man came along, a Christian leader within the community, and he began to invest in me. He began to pour into me. These insecurities that I believed, he began to actually teach me truth, saying, no, 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 Caleb, I see something in you. The Lord will use you. You do matter. You're important, and God will and does want to grow you and change you. Caleb, hang in there. Keep pushing. And I believe these things. The insecurities began to fade away, and I trusted this man. Well, it turns out he sexually abused me for years of my life. And I hear the words of the man who said, I have no one and it's the words that I have said throughout my childhood. I'm all alone. I know what it's like to be abandoned by the man that you trust. I know what it's like to be isolated from a community that you can't share out of fear of being looked down upon. I know what it's like to be separated from society because of the shame that haunts me. And not only do I know what it's like to be alone, I know what it's like to feel hopeless saying there's nothing that I could do that would ever take away or change the past. Nothing that I can do to rid myself of the memories or the nightmares or the hurts or the insecurities. You see, not only was I abused, but then I was tormented by lies. After, after everything that began to happen, I started to think that I was weak, that I was worthless, and that I was without a story. I believed that because I couldn't stop what happened to me, that I must be weak. And if I'm weak, I can't do anything in this life. I believe that because I couldn't stop what happened to me, I was worthless. And if I had any value before it had happened, obviously that wasn't true or else the Lord wouldn't have let it happen. 
and I believed that I was without a story, there was no hope for me. Nothing was gonna change what had happened. Nothing could erase what took place and nothing good would ever come from an abused child. I was lost. I was abandoned. And I was hopeless. And so I did the only thing I knew to do. I began to run. And I ran off to college and I thought I was running away alone, but it turns out the Lord was chasing me. And my freshman year at college, I could hear the Lord knocking on my heart saying, Caleb, you need to tell somebody. Caleb, you need to share with someone. Caleb, you need to talk about this. Don't do this alone. And finally, one night, I called my brother, Zach, and I said, Zach, we gotta talk. And as I lay in my dorm room, just weeping, I began to share with him what took place to me. I began to open up, and what my brother did was sit with me was pray with me, was cry with me, was be present with me. And as my brother was present with me, I realized that Jesus was present with me. And there was a moment as I was lying there, crying on my dorm room floor, just explaining everything that had happened. I threw my hand up. And as I threw my hand up, I said, Zach, I'm not weak. And me saying I'm not weak wasn't me claiming my own strength. It was actually me admitting that Jesus is the one who is in charge of being strong. And in that moment with my hand extended, I could see the Lord reach his out, grab me, say, Caleb, I love you. Now, would you walk with me? And as we walked, he began to take the lies that I believed and he replaced them with truth. He said, Caleb, you're not weak because it's not about that. Caleb, it's actually in weakness that my strength is perfected. Caleb, you're not worthless. I'm the one who gives value, not this world. This world can't give it, it can't take it. I've given it to you, no one will rob that from you. Caleb, you're not without a story because I'm writing you into mine and it is a story of hope and redemption, mercy and justice. And it not only began to talk to me and, and share truth with me, but I, I felt the Lord look at me and to a heart that was riddled with anger and hatred fear and shame. It was almost as if the Lord said, give me that one. It's too broken. Here, take mine. And he gave me a new heart, a heart that wasn't just ruled by anger, but actually could find peace. You see, I was laying there in my dorm room, and what I realized is that in the, as my brother prayed with me and talked with me, as I engaged with him, I experienced the presence of Jesus, and in the presence of Jesus, I found the power of Jesus. For the longest time, I thought there's no way that God's with me. As I look back at those shameful moments of my past, those hurtful moments in my past, I believed that God was, he, those were too dark for him, that he would turn his eye to me, that he wouldn't be present with me. What I've realized is that even in my hardest times, even in my most shameful moments, Jesus has been present with me, looking at me, seeing me, holding me, weeping with me. Because he doesn't just want to get rid of pain. He wants to heal us from pain by walking through it with us. And he wasn't just present with me. He was also powerful. Because he showed up and he took the lies that were killing me and changed them for truth that set me free. He took a heart that was broken and offered me a new one. Don't separate yourself from the healing of the man at the pool at Bethesda because Jesus shows up to the people who are hurting because he's a present God and he is a powerful God. But the story doesn't end there. It doesn't end with Jesus simply healing this man. It keeps going. This time, I want you all to look for details, dialogue, 
and action statements. See, after Jesus healed him, the man got up, he walked, and it says that the day that this happened was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, hey, it's not lawful for you to do this. You can't pick up your bed. And the man says, well, the guy who healed me, he told me, take up my bed and walk. And so as he's saying this to the Jews, they reply and say, well, where is this man who told you to take up your bed and walk? They don't even say, where's the man who healed you? They just go, where's the man who told you to take up your bed and walk? But this guy who was healed, he doesn't know. Because Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd beginning to form. And then in verse 14, something happens. I, I gotta give you this detail. It says afterward. Remember back for a second. How did the story start? After this. After this and afterward. In the original, it's the same word. It's almost like John is bookending his story He's cluing the readers in. You see these two afters. We started this way, we're ending this way. And the way that he bookends his story, the way that he brings it all together is with the line that Jesus says to this man. The man doesn't know who Jesus is. Jesus withdraws, there's a crowd. And then later, Jesus goes and finds him again. You wanna talk about a present God. Jesus is a pursuing God. Jesus finds him and says this, see, you're well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And I'll say it again, it's another outrageous line. Jesus started the conversation that way, he ends it, and then he opens up a new one. Because it is what, exactly what we think it is. Jesus has given him a warning. Jesus comes up to the man after finding him again and says, see, I, I healed you, but you're still lame. You, you think you got your life back because you got your legs back. But life isn't found in walking. Life is found in walking with the creator. He says, stop sinning and sin no more. You thought separation from society was harsh. Separation from your creator because of sin is the worst. And it's, all, it's a plea. You can hear the heart of Jesus' plea behind it because Jesus is the one who found him, healed him, finds him again. And then Jesus says, I wanna heal you even more. I don't wanna just heal your legs. I wanna heal your soul. I don't wanna give you a few good years here on earth. I wanna give you an eternity of good years with me. I wanna be present with you forever and I'm the one who's powerful enough to do that for you. And to this, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. I don't know what that says about the man. We could speculate a little bit. I've got some ideas. I, a lot of times I go, well, was he saved? Did he repent? Did he turn away? Does this work? But that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is Jesus. And what this text in the story clearly says is that Jesus as God is present and he is powerful. Don't distance yourself from that because the same God that healed that man at the pool is the same God who wants to walk with you. What do you do with that? I actually think there's two good responses to a present and powerful God. I'll give you one right now and one in a second. The first is this. Just say thank you. And the way that we say thank you to a present and powerful God this morning right now is in worship. Would you sing with us? You are with me in the 
I think the first response to a present and powerful God is to say, thank you. The second response is to do exactly that which John did. You see, John experienced the presence of Jesus and the power of Jesus, and then he became a storyteller of the presence of Jesus and the power of Jesus. And we as followers of Christ, and let me say it this way, we don't have the responsibility to tell of Christ. You have the privilege to tell of the present and powerful Jesus. And so that's what, that, that's my charge for you. Today, this week, the band's gonna play a song. If you need more time to reflect, take it. But before you leave today, some, tell someone of the presence of Jesus. Tell someone about the power of Jesus as you've seen it in your life or encourage them. Find someone and tell them how you see Jesus show up in their life, how you see Jesus working through your life. We wanna be people with detail and dialogue and action who speak of the magnificent God who chose to be present and powerful with us. Fellowship, we love you. If you need prayer, we'll be here in the prayer room. We hope you have a great week.